Hi, folks. This is Chuck Clow from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. So our last episode was really not a conversation. It was the beginning of our In Concert series, and we had Darden Smith live at Club Passim. This is the conversation we had with Darden before the show. Darden is a veteran songwriter with 15 albums under his belt, with frequent touring, writing, and performing his mix of Americana, country, and rock. In addition to this, he has an amazing project called Songwriting with Soul that pairs professional songwriters in retreat settings with active duty and veteran military members to write songs based upon their experiences of combat and returning home. It's an amazing project, and you can read more about it at dardensmith.com. This is recorded at the famous Boston venue, Club Passim. The mission of Passim is to provide truly exceptional and interactive live music experiences for both performers and audiences, to nurture artists at all stages of their career, and to build a vibrant music community. They do so through their legendary listening venue, music school, artist grants, and outreach programs. Located in Harvard Square, Passim serves Cambridge and the broader region by featuring local, national, and international artists. Their ultimate goal is to help the performance arts flourish and thereby enrich the lives of members of our community. For more information, visit Passim.org. So here's our conversation with the great Darden Smith, recorded at Club Passim in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cheers. It's bad luck to toast with water, but it yeah. is. I don't think I've ever toasted it's, with a metal it's, it's glass Easter either. Week, it's Easter week. Yeah. We're good. We're yeah. forgiving. Yeah, it's cool. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's cool. <laughs> I mean, not for you. But mm. like, you know, yeah, you're screwed. Well, you know. <laughs> I'm going to a Seder tonight. Cool. So I'm doing uh, say, uh, work, podcast, Seder. Seder, Darden. I have a, I have a two-hour parent driver's ed course. My, my daughter's going into driver's ed. I'm going to go That's home and do that, is. and then I'm going to come back to see you. So. Guys, you guys are... Well, you know, it's rock and roll, baby. I know. I, I listen to everything. All right. It's very good. Thank you. I'm psyched to hear... Well, I don't know what you're going to play tonight. We'll have to, I'll we'll play have to wait. I'll play that. Yeah. Yeah. Very thoughtful. I'm a thoughtful guy. You are a thoughtful I guy. I know, yeah. It'd but it's, it's neat to hear... You know, I heard some of your music when I first met you back in September last year in that conference we met. That was all songwriting with soldiers. Oh, sure. Um, remind but then me, to hear... Remind yeah. me again how you guys met. So we met through uh, Sharon... Sharon. Sharon House. Oh, that's right, Sharon. I remember you. And in Nashville. Well, you were in Nashville at the time? I went down in mid-September last year to this music okay. medicine yeah, and society. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then the songwriters with soldiers. Songwriting with soldiers. Songwriting. So- songwriting. songwriting. Songwriting with soldiers, Writer. sorry. Had a, a live demonstration with you and John House. James House. What's your problem, dude? Come on, get with the program. <laughs> You and James That's embarrassing. House. embarrassing. Right. Good thing I edited this. Is this live? Yeah. yeah. We're alive. <laughs> anyway, so it sort of opened my eyes to the idea of music as therapy rather than music therapy and the fact that it was therapeutic for these soldiers. So that's how we met afterwards. And I guess just recently, what I realized is that the acronym is actually a SW colon S. Right. And I never put it together until just this week when we were going to meet with you that it's songwriting with soldiers. Right. And because the songwriting with, as Chuck's seen too through looking in your history, is that it is with many you people. You can do it with anything, but we actually, originally it was a thing that I had songwriting with, and that was with different groups. And then we um, closed all those other parts down when songwriting with soldiers kind of took off. 
And so really the songwriting with soldiers is really the name. It's the only one that I do now. And then I changed that other work. I sort of renamed all that other work songsmithing. So songsmithing, all those other categories of work that I do, collaborative songwriting with people, it all falls under that songsmithing, except for songwriting with soldiers. When you're when you're touring, mm-hmm. do you work out the ability to have sessions wherever you're, wherever you're going, or is it kind of in different in certain places at certain times? Uh, like already as scheduled? far as the songwriting with soldiers, yes. Uh, well, songwriting with soldiers is booked so far out in advance that that we, uh, okay. I kind of tour around that. I see. So it's and uh, but I do other work <clears throat> when I'll be touring. Sometimes I'll do sort of some song, collaborative songwriting that I'll sort of fit in around the touring. And uh, so sometimes I'm working in schools. Yeah. Sometimes I'm working with individuals. Sometimes in companies. Uh, all kinds of stuff around the touring. You're a busy guy. I have a real fascination with paying my bills. Yeah. <laughs> <Do you? laughs> it's a really interesting yeah. thing. Well, I've always known that, that. I get bored really quickly with projects. And I like projects uh, as opposed to looking at really long-term things. I, I like short, finite projects. It keeps my excitement up, interest up. But also around around the year 2000, um, it's how all this work started happening. Is I got really bored with the traditional sort of writing songs, making records, going out on tour, writing songs, making records. I, I'd done it, already done it for you know, all these years. And I was hitting some walls just in my work life and my personal life. And it just wasn't exciting anymore. Like music and songs weren't exciting to me. And that's when I started working with schools, with school kids, with collaborative. It was a project called the Be an Artist Program. And that was going in and talking to school kids about seeing themselves as artists, no matter what they're interested in. Dentistry, law, medicine, soccer, computer games, doesn't matter. Look at it as art. And that comes from attention, intention, and doing what you love. That's where artistic thinking comes from. And so that led me into this world of learning how to write songs with groups of people because I would write a song with each session. And then as that grew, it kind of went all the way up through the grades, grade levels into college. But I learned how to write songs with a group of people, like 30, 40, 100 people write one song fast. And so over the years, 2000, starting around 2000, 2001, up until like 2008, I was doing it a lot. So I was touring and, you know, working in schools uh, during the day, and then I'd go do a gig at night. So it was, it was a blast. It was, you know, it was a lot of work, but it's fun, you hmm. know. And uh, through that... I got asked to do a project at Covenant House in Newark, New Jersey. So I'd go in and, and do the same thing there with homeless kids. So Covenant House takes homeless kids off the street, teenagers off the street, gives them a GED, place to live, you know, to social skills, job skills. So I would go in there and work with those kids. We were, once again, we were writing songs, groups of people, you know, so anywhere from four participants to up to 20. That's where I learned there about transference of trauma through the act of collaborative songwriting. So I would go in and I'd write these songs. These kids would tell me these stories about the, the homeless stories. They would feel fantastic. At the end of the session, I would feel like I'd been hit by a truck. And I couldn't figure it out. I had to go to my therapist, and my therapist told me, okay, well, that's secondary trauma. You know, that's what you, that's what you experience. So I learned that. I also learned the power of bringing disparate groups together and getting them to collaborate. And that happened through working with gangs Crips and Bloods, getting the Crips and Bloods to write a song together, Mm. but not making it about, hey, let's write a song. It's just, let's write a song. Not, okay, you're Crips, you're Bloods, I think we can do this together. It's just, don't even mention that. Just get them rhyming, get them talking, and afterwards go, that's pretty interesting. I'd like everybody to realize that we just wrote a song together. End of session. We tried to bring in young, sort of African-American urban writers to work on that project. I tried to do it. I was doing it through ASCAP. And it was a nightmare because there was too much similarity 
between the writer and the participant. So I learned the magic of being neutral because I was this like 45-year-old white guy from Texas, basically a Martian. So there's a neutrality uh, aspect to the collaboration where there's no prejudgment. So I can't come in prejudging, and they have no context to prejudge me. To me, it allows for a cleaner slate for the writing. It allows for a cleaner slate for the transference of trauma because there's no prejudged assumptions about what I will and will not think. And it also allows for me to be more open to what they say. So that was fascinating to me. How did that become apparent to them? How did you break that? The that judgment ceiling? thing. Yeah. Uh, as far well, as at first it was odd, and they would try to like freak me out with stories or actions. You're diving into songsmithing while yeah. you're while you're talking. Yeah, and yeah, we're writing songs, and they would talk about somebody was you know drugs or you know prostitution or I mean all kinds. I heard everything you know in there, and I would just not not react. I hear it. I'm definitely hearing it, but my outward features aren't aren't, and I'm not going. Oh my God, that's terrible. That's the worst thing you can say is, that's awful. Or, gosh, that must be really hard on you. you know, or like, whatever. It's like, just like, just say, interesting. Uh, so what rhymes with car? <laughs> you know, I mean, what, how, and move the story on. So what rhymes with that? And so it It's doesn't, helping both of you, it sounds like. So I don't get stuck in it. They don't get stuck in it. And they also realize, oh, this guy's not treating us like a therapist. How, how long did it take for you to realize that your reaction was changing the, the relationship there and that you had to kind of be a neutral, um, I, a neutral I partner know, over, there. A, over a course of probably a year of doing yeah. this? I, I would do I, it like every couple of months. Yeah. I'd go in there. I, I, it was just this thing. I, I, was, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I really did, yeah. wasn't thinking about it. I was just going. It was fascinating to me. I was just fascinated. I was looking for different ways to use songs. All I've ever wanted to do is write songs. Like, I, it's like I started writing when I was 10. Yeah. To me, it was this other way to use songs. It was a way to work as a musician, just like, I want to work. And also, there was no showbiz. So it's music without the music business, which yeah. to me was delicious because I was just totally sick of the music business. So how can I keep operating? How do I keep pushing myself artistically and writing-wise without worrying about the music business and at the same time make a living? I mean, what I've noticed in your work is that you have become an expert in bringing the story out of somebody. While at the same time, you have your own albums, you know, 14, 15 albums, and you have your own story, of course. You've always been a musician, always been a songwriter, but over time, you, you've been able to, you call it songsmithing, which once the product is out there, though, it's sort of like it's a, it's a voice for that group or that mm -hmm. person. Definitely. I'm curious about the Crips and Blood experience. What type of songs came out of that, and what, what was the effect songs. of it? That was the thing that struck me. So these are teenagers, late teens, street kids. You know, a lot of drugs, alcohol, gang stuff. So Covenant House was in the Crip zone. And I think as the van, the Covenant House vans that go out into the street and pick up kids and find them and get them to come in, they had brought in some bloods. That's the way it was explained to me. It could be, the, it could be flipped the other way around. Like it was a, I think it was Crip zone, but they brought in some bloods. So there were actually gang fights going on. And I, you know, like I'm on the train going out there, and they call me and go, oh, you don't have to come today if you don't want to. Have they told you what's going on here? And I'm like, no. And they said, well, da 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 da, da fights. And I went, well, I'm not going to turn around. Now's the time. That, like, definitely coming now. This is awesome. Let's go. And we, you know, I said, just I need, I need like backup yeah. in the room. So we had these big, <laughs> you know, these big dudes uh, that were there backing me up. But it was, um, it was actually uh, the first time that I'd gotten this stare. Which I call this the stare where a guy like I asked a guy to be quiet and he like looked at me like I am gonna take you out I was just like turned around to this guy Alphonse who was my backup and I went you gotta 
be ready for this one because it's coming. And that guy left. He they got him out of the room. Hmm. That's so. But I've I've seen that stare not in the same violent way with soldiers that I've worked with. Oh. Of, of like basically what it is. I've triggered something uh, that has actually has nothing to do with me. I know it's not doesn't have anything to do with me. It's that I represent something and some word or some action that I've done completely accidentally has punctured a deep place in that person. And they're looking at me, and they want to. That's the stare. In soldiers, I've seen that stare. Like so, uh, hmm. but the the thing that struck me working at, at Covenant House was how many songs were rooted in gospel thought. Oddly enough, I haven't thought about this, but the number one thing we wrote about at Covenant House was home and family and lack of hmm. home and family. Which, if you write with soldiers, the number one song in all of our songs is home. So shortly after doing that work, I did some conflict resolution work with Israelis and Palestinians, doing the same thing, getting them together. And once again, they were like at each other's. As soon as the conversations began to talk about uh, politics or land, it would go crazy. And it was amazing because once again, I found that as soon as you pulled them into the song process, all the tension dissipated and they would collaborate. And so the thing is like, okay, you can collaborate on this. Collaborate like in a conversation, you know. And uh, there was a fascinating experience that we had there. Were pal- so it was like seven Israeli Jewish kids, seven Israeli Christian, and then seven Palestinians from the West Bank, which who were Muslim. One of the Palestinian girls sat down at the piano one afternoon. I started playing this folk song, and these Jewish kids went over and started singing. And I was like, "Wow, you guys know the same folk song." And we were like, well, yeah, of course. I went, awesome. That's our next exercise. Love so it. we took the structure of the folk song with the chorus, sang, kept the chorus the same. And I split the groups up, Israeli, Jewish, Israeli, Christian, Palestinians. Let's go to the different parts of the building. Use this form. There's the lyric form. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. Why are you here? What's the conflict from your perspective? What's the story? And so you keep it really in the right, the song part, you keep I call it dead simple. Keep it really simple, but keep it folk songy. And whether that's Motown, whether it's folk song, whether it's what, keep it folk song because that's then they don't have to think about it. So what happens with all these songs when you when you're finished with them? What? We record them and then they're given to the people who participate. I saw the video on the on the website. It was a, a statement by one of the soldiers where he said, "About halfway through, I realized he wasn't just trying to make himself feel good. He was talking about talking about you." Oh right. That is an interesting comment, especially I, I had an experience last weekend. Well, first off, that's like a massive compliment from these guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, really, it is. Soldiers have a phrase called, they call them flag wavers, and that's for people that are doing these kinds of things with soldiers to make themselves feel good. Soldiers really resent that, mm. but they're really doing it to salve a wound inside of themselves mm. as opposed to salve a wound for someone else, right. a service. Man, soldiers have such a low bullshit meter. I think homeless kids do too. And a lot of times the people who are trying to help them don't realize they're doing it for themselves. Either. No, 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 no. They're, I mean, and I think that they're, I think too, that they're I, it's not a flaw. Yeah, sure. It's a, human, it's a human act. Well, yeah, I think you hit on it. I think it's human. But someone, and you said the bullshit meter, I mean, someone's going to pick up on the fact that there's genuine altruism in this world, and there is genuine desire to make another person feel more at peace. I don't know what the word for it. I just know when I do it. So you know when it works, and you know when it doesn't by now. Well, I think so. 
Yeah, I, it's funny because I don't think about this stuff very much. I actually don't. I don't get into the thinking of it. I consciously stay out of the thinking of the work of songwriting with soldiers because if I get into too much technical thinking about it and the hows and the whys, it sort of overanalyzes it, and I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> so other people do. Because I know you've mentioned to me before that you need almost a, a break, your own. Oh, God. You uh, need a break from the transfer of the a trauma. The trauma. It takes two or three days for me to get it. It's funny. Right. I was, last weekend, or weekend before last, I did... Uh, um, a retreat and uh, with EOD guys, so it's explosive ordnance disposal. Way intense. And I heard some stories, some combat stories that were probably some of the most gruesome. It was just really vivid and stuff. I was like, oh my God, like really? Like people do that? You know, but now I've got these images in my brain. And I'm a, it's kind of a softy, I'm a very absorbing person. You know, I take in emotions from people it's why maybe why the work maybe why this whole thing works is that i'm a very emo- i'm not sure the word but anyway i take stuff on and there was one guy that we worked with like when he came to the retreat he said i don't want to be here the first thing he said was this is stupid i don't want to be here we wrote this song he cried the whole way through the song the song was called man behind the curtain which is he goes you know i just want to be the man behind the curtain i was like it's an awesome song title. <laughs> and uh, so I wrote this song. And afterwards, you know, he, it was great. He had a real, he went from not letting me hug him, like having a force field around him, that yeah, he used his yeah. hand, a handshake to keep people away, to after I played his song, the final day I played his song, he stood up and came over and he goes, you look like you need a hug. And he lifted me up off the ground with a hug. Amazing. So, yeah. but I couldn't shake these stories. And while we were at the retreat, I went to one of the leaders and I said, you know, listen, man, I got to tell you this like story that I heard. I don't know how to let it go until I know if it's true. He goes, oh, yeah, that's, that happens. Well, two days later, I'm still like, I get home. I, could, I was trying to write an email, and I couldn't make a sentence. My brain was short-circuiting. One, from exhaustion, but also, I think, from post-traumatic stress. Secondary trauma. And um, yeah. I had to call the guy up again, and I go, listen, man, I got to tell you this story again. I got to get a really clear confirmation from you what is real and what isn't here. You know what I'm curious about, too, is the song itself that came out of that. Was there a song? Yeah. Man Behind the Curtain? Man Behind the Curtain, and then another one called uh, Bottled Up. So those, one or both of those songs, if you are to hear them, or if he and she, do you think that they ever bring the PTSD back, or do they usually heal? My sort of hypothesis is that the actual creation and the smithing, the song smithing mm-hmm. is what is therapeutic. And then when you hear it, because we all hear music and it affects us. Yeah. I'm curious how it affects you. I, and the- Well, it helps clear it for me. Uh-huh. It helps clear the clearing of these things for me. But this is not my story. I think for them, my thought is that the healing from them comes initially in the telling of the story to me. And then recognizing that I heard them. So I sing the words back to them. It's a demonstration that, yes, I heard you. It's a validation. I yeah. heard you enough yeah. to then run it through my jigsaw puzzle mind and create a song. That's the initial healing thing, I think, for them. Then to have the song come through and be completed. And so that's when the transformation begins in them. The body language and uh, attitude, smiles, facial changes. And then when we perform the song and other people hear it, okay, and other people sitting across the room go, yeah, thumbs up, yeah, fist bumps, then they see that their story is not only their story, their story has been heard by people who weren't in the room, and then other people share the same story. That's like another wave of healing. And then when they get home, they can listen to it privately, and then when they share the song with other people electronically, 
they just send other people their song. Other people listen. We've heard many experiences where it, they're like at a family gathering and it gets tense and they just turn their phone on and walk out of the room. Like, listen to that. Boom. That's what's going on with me. That's massive. Or and they don't always walk out of the room, but we've heard from several times like people turn the phone on and walk out of the room. Listen to this. And that is this other like validation like, you're not hearing me. These guys heard me and you're my family. So that, that, does that make sense? It does. So all those it's, things together, I think, to finish the story where we started, I had to call back to the guy to get the stories again. And this guy who's you know like a 27-year, 25-year Army Ranger guy at Boulder Crest Retreats, he, you know, he said, yeah, it's real. It's true. Here's, again, here's what I saw. Here's what I've seen. Da, da, da. And he said, first off, they shouldn't, probably shouldn't tell you those stories because it's not really your you know, it's not really your job. But the fact that they did tell you the stories means that they trust you. Because first they tell you and try to freak you out. And when you don't freak out, they go, oh, wow. This guy, this is like, it's a clean, I call it, I think it's a clear space. It's like a gate that they can go through, a doorway that they feel like, oh, I can let all this stuff go through this doorway. I think. You know, I don't know. But that's my sort of yeah, art, I mean, art thinking about it. I think it's a perfect meld of arts and science and health because I, I really think that it is therapy in disguise in a sense. The, cool. the thing, you know, I mean, I, I've done a lot of therapy. I've been, I've been on that. Therapy, there's always an elevated person in the room. The therapist is always elevated. I know. I can heal you. We don't go about it that way. Yeah, we ain't healing anybody. We're writing songs. If someone gets healed, that's awesome. It's a good if you day. don't, yeah. Okay, cool. We still got a song, dude. Then if you approach it that way, like I'm not going to heal you. I can't. I'm a songwriter. I have no science behind. There's no medicine here. Well, and through sometimes that, sometimes you don't need any. something might happen. <laughs> I think that's why it happens yeah. because this is the other thing. I think is like I cannot write this song by myself. I have to have you in the room. You have to be a part of it. Kind of goes back to your TED talk. The fear, fear of your gift. Mm-hmm. We talk about fear a little bit. In you guys are, I'm kind of afraid of you guys right now. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bald thing. People, yeah, right. get, people are scared of bald guys. Um, but not many musicians would have the guts to do these kind of things, to actually go in and meet with these vets, meet with these kids. I mean, you have to have a pretty brave soul to do that. And that whole idea of overcoming your fear and using your art to do that. I love the title of that. And it's also interesting that I thought I read something where after you did the Ted, was it after you did the TED Talk? After when you got off, you kind of broke down. It was oh, like totally. a, I get emotional especially for, just yeah, thinking about for, it. Yeah, for, for an emotional guy, I find myself getting much more emotional as I, as I get older. I mean, it's a brave thing to, to be emotional in front of people. Certainly, you can be a musician and not be emotional. It happens all the time. But there right. are the special musicians and songwriters who let the songs or whatever they're doing affect them and yeah. let people see that it affects yeah. them. I think the fear in your gift thing, I think every, everybody has this massive gift. I think everyone has a gift. And it's the scariest thing to actually embrace the gift because when you embrace the gift that you have as and I like you know I don't know the right word for it but I would say as an adult you embrace because there's one thing you have a gift when you're young a kid okay that's great awesome you know and you're growing up and you get into your twenties and you get moving it's great your real gift doesn't I think really hit you when you until you mature out of that and you have to crash you have to crash okay and the crash is coming for everybody so once you crash in whatever way that is. Then you see what the gift is. Embracing the gift then is, I think, the next phase because you often means you have to change kind of your approach. You have to change the story. You have to change. You have to burn off a little bit of ego there. Go, well, I, this is what got me here. That also led to my 
collapse and I gotta change. And when you change, you can embrace that gift and really move forward. And it might look really different than what got you here. And that is scary, man. It's really scary for hmm. everybody. I mean, it's scary for everybody because it also means, you know, if you're an adult, you have kids and family, it means embracing, you know, like financial change, all that stuff. But I think if people can do that, and it's, it's such a human thing, that's a basic primal human fear. When you do that, that's where the good stuff is. That's when it gets awesome. That's what song, this kind of work, the songwriting work. It's when like did a, that happen for you? Uh, it happened around 2000. To, I was just at the bottom. I was broke. I was bored. I was frustrated. My family was falling apart. And uh, I was just miserable. And I just knew that the one thing I, I pulled back and I went like, okay, what do I love doing? I love writing songs. And originally it was basically, how can I continue to make a living writing songs? <laughs> like, oh, I can do this thing here. And I stumbled into it. So I was lucky, but I constantly arced back to love, to what do I love? Songs. Okay, how do I write songs? You know, working in these groups, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, this is not a, this is not a linear thing for me. It was an accidental, on purpose, saying yes to opportunities, things, and always driven by how can I write songs and how can I make a living? how do I have fun? I want it to be weird, too. I want it to be a little unsettling. So how can I keep ramping up the unsettling and bring all these things together? Yeah, so uh, how can and, it be and, satisfying? And Yeah, it's got to be satisfying yeah. and artistically. And, and, and then yeah. it just kept getting more and more intense. I also kept getting further and further away from the music business and closer and closer and closer to music. And conversely, that keeps me deeper and deeper in the music business. Well, that that does is, that make sense? That whole yeah, it's totally full it's that. full circle, and it's interesting because you said you played this place. We're sitting here at Club Passim, yeah, in 1986. 1986, yeah, and yeah. 30 years. That's ago. a the story and the changes that have brought you to this place is kind of that full yeah. circle, actually sitting right here. Yeah. On that note, I guess I when I see that you've written albums throughout this time and put out albums and toured, how do you think may or may have not? But how how has the work with the kids and the vets and others impacted your own songwriting. Uh, first of all, it's, ta- it's taken the fear away from me that I'm, am I or am I not going to write a song? Like I'm going to write a song, okay? Like I know that, you know, I'm going to do something. It may not be good, but I'm going to write a song. <laughs> like I can sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write a song by lunch. That doesn't mean it's going to be a great song. So I'm, I'm more comfortable with uh, just turning on the water tap and out comes something, you know. And I'm also way more comfortable sitting down with another person and going, hey, let's write a song. I don't care who you are. Let's write a song. And just talking and knowing that the really good song lyrics come from conversation. So I've just learned that. I'm like really comfortable. I really believe in that. But I don't think that the work with the kids affected my music other than to open me up, start to peel back the layers of my own sort of awareness of the human condition a little bit. But I don't think until this record, until everything, did, did I, was I comfortable enough and I had like nothing to lose. I just decided to make a record based on the songs I was going to put on the record are heavily influenced by songwriting with soldiers in that ability to look into somebody else's life, ability to see what, to see how a song can change a life and the knowledge that when you actually tell the truth in a song and there's no, you know, not varnishing or hiding in the song, because you can hide in a song. So if you don't hide and actually say what's really on your mind, it resonates deeper within me as a writer and 
oddly enough, it resonates deeper with people that hear it. Not that like the world is going to be swept off yeah. their feet with his record necessarily. And I learned that through songwriting with soldiers. Like songs change lives, songs have saved lives in songwriting with soldiers. The actual song has saved lives. All I ever wanted to do was fly. world and live in the sky lift the C-130 out of Fort Worth town I go up some days don't want to come down fly that plane call the angel flight Come on, brother, you'll meet tonight Between heaven and earth You're never alone On the angel flight Come on, brother, I'm taking you Love my family and I love this land But tonight this flight's for another man Do what we do, cause we hear the call Some give a little, but he gave all So I fly that plane Call the angel flight Come on brother, you'll meet tonight Between heaven and earth You're never alone On the angel flight Come on brother, taking you home Come on Cockpit's quiet, stars are bright Feels kinda like church in here tonight It don't matter where we touch down On the angel flight, it's sacred ground Fly that plane Call the angel flight I got a hero riding with us tonight Between heaven and earth Oh, you're never alone On the angel flight Come on, brother Taking you home Come on, brother Come on, brother, taking you home. Come on, brother, taking you home. 
the song Me Too. Me Too, yeah. The way that you're talking to me right now, I'm thinking Me Too mm. on the new album, mm-hmm. Everything, yeah. which okay. I personally love the song Going Against the Grain, and I loved Home. I liked, I liked them all, but you think of an album, you think yeah. of like, what are the ones that come out? Those stood out to me. But Me Too is that, hey, let's meet in a coffee shop. Yeah, that's a, that's a true story. What do you got? Okay. I got that too. I heard a lecture, a woman came out and she said, this is what happened to me. They're painful, awful, but she was like flat out telling us what happened. Then she said, I couldn't have relationships, walled myself off, and people would freak out when I told them what my story was, and guys would try to save me, or guys would try to run away from me. And then I was telling a guy that I really liked, I said, okay, here's the deal with me. And he goes, oh, me too. And I was so moved by that. You know, I was on my way to Nashville the, two days later, and I went to James' house, and I went, dude, I heard this fantastic story, me too. And I was like, you know, so James and I wrote this song. Oh, know. do you write that together? Yeah, I wrote yeah. that with James' yeah. house. yeah. And oddly enough, the woman got very upset with me that I wrote the song, which was very interesting. Now, I, I was like honoring her story, but she was, was uh, not happy that I'd written the story. <laughs> it, was, it was very interesting. Right. Well, you shouldn't tell your story to a songwriter, I guess. If you uh, yeah, be careful. <laughs> Got to be yeah, careful right. what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> well, it certainly resonated with me. And tell us about <clears throat> Saving Lives. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll just, I'll play. a man named Josh Gertz who came to a retreat. Uh, Josh is in a six-wheel wheelchair. And before the uh, retreat, he'd actually posted a kind of a suicide note or a goodbye note on mm. Facebook, mm-hmm. you know. And um, at the retreat, he writes a song with Mary Gaucher called Still on the Ride, where he basically, you know, laid out his entire story of military service and, and so stuff he went through. And now his body's falling apart and he's got these kids and da 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 da. And, and, uh, and through the writing of that, he was uh, altered, you know, like he was, feel like something was lifted off of him. And then at the performance, we were doing this final performance, we heard him playing harmonica. So nobody knew that he played harmonica. So he's sitting up in the back of the hall playing harmonica. And we're like, uh, do you play harmonica? He's like, yeah. So then we recorded him playing harmonica on these songs. And he's really good, too. And Mary Gaucher was playing the Opry about two months later, the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. And she came to me and she said, uh, listen, I want to get Josh to come play harmonica. I want to play a song on the Opry. So we found a private plane to fly him down at the, that service organization that flew him down to Nashville. And he went on the Opry. So he played on the Opry. He got a six-minute standing ovation. They turned the lights on. Whispering Bill Anderson was the MC that night, and he said, listen, you've been blessed by Hank. Right. And all the people who stood on you know, It's very emotional. Mm. You know, but um, Six minutes? The ba- uh, yeah, and- six minutes. And uh, the band leader was this guy, this crusty old Nashville musician. He comes over to Josh, and he goes, listen, man, I've been on the Opry hundreds of times. I played with Dolly and Porter. <laughs> I played with them all. I have never seen that. And walking off the stage, Mary Gaucher walked by him and he hugged her. He goes, I want to live. I want to live. And now he's still alive. And he was not supposed to be this long. He's about to do a 422-mile wheelchair ride from Angola, Indiana, to uh, the Air Force Base in Niagara Falls to raise awareness for 22 vets who take their lives every day. And he just credited, he goes, you know, without songwriting with soldiers, I wouldn't be here. It's That's not, amazing. What's yeah, his name again? Josh? Josh Gertz. And uh, once again, I, I just want to reiterate, it's not like we're magicians. It's not the writer. It's not the program. It's the process. It's a, it's a mysterious thing, but it's not, it's not like Mary Gaucher saved his life. She didn't. It's the collaboration. Yeah. So I believe that it's, it's really the, the real process is based in the neutrality of the people coming in. Set up a situation where there's a lack of judgment. I think that is where the real kind of glue is to the healing. 
It's a perfect storm, though, Darden, in a good way, because it's that, but it's music. If it was done without music, it would still be helpful, I think, if there was a story, if this was prose. Music is beautiful. Music and lyrics. There's this great quote from Yip Harburg, who wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow, but it's basically saying the magic of song and words, melody and lyric. I think it lies in the creation of it. And then it's song, it's vibrations. It's literally vibrations that are being spoken and sung. And then the idea that it goes from, you know, songs are like ripples, you throw a rock in a pond and it goes out. You never know who's going to hear it. Sometimes five people hear these songs. Sometimes 5,000 people hear these songs. You never know. You've mentioned about how you were saying yes to things. Mm -hmm. One of the examples that you gave that I read about was you saying yes to the Grand Motion Symphony that you wrote, (laughs) even though... I don't you, read music. You don't read music. <laughs> but you write it. <laughs> but, but I mean, I don't read music either, but this is where you say yes to things that scare you or, you know, I don't know if it, yeah. did, I don't know if it scared well, you or I, not. I, uh, I like weird things. You know, I like strange, sort of dissonant things in my life. And I had done, a, I'd started working with dance theater in the 80s, collaborating on dance theater pieces with some choreographers in Austin, just because it was so weird. It's like I knew nothing about dance. You know, I became a huge fan of like Bill T. Jones and, you know, Overtigo from Montreal. I had my dance companies I would go see and stuff. It was strange. I couldn't get any of my friends to go see him with me, which was, I thought was very funny. I'd fly to New York to go see dance, and everybody's like, what's up with you? And, uh, <laughs> And I just got approached by the symphony, the Austin Symphony. They said, would you do something with the symphony? And they wanted me to just score some of my songs and like sing along with the symphony. And I just said, that just sounds really boring. So why would I want to do that? I mean, I would get paid way more money to do that, of course. But I said, no, I'll only do it if you commission me to write a new piece and we collaborate with a dance company. To which she promptly went, that's crazy. And I went, I know, but that's if you want me, that's really what it is. Assuming that they would say no, so I wouldn't have to deal with this. And the people in the office said, that's ridiculous. We've never commissioned anyone. And why would we commission you? I was like, well, you don't have to, but I'm just telling that's the deal. But the guy said, we have a brand new conductor, and he's actually the music director, so really it's his call. And it's got Peter Bay. So I had lunch with Peter, Peter Bay, and we're the same age. And we have lunch, and we start talking about records, and we all have our favorite records are kind of blue. And we're both into Bill Evans, mm. and we're both into this jazz stuff. And I, play, I gave him a cassette of music that I'd written for dance. And he, you know, he listens to it, and he goes, I think this will be fun. I'm looking forward to this. And nice. I'm like, holy shit, now I have to do this thing. So I signed a contract and began listening to classical music all the time and totally freaked myself out because I was going, oh, my God, i got to be Brahms. And I was way into Arvo Part, and I was like, oh, my God, no, I'll never do this. <laughs> and everything I wrote was just terrible. And I wrote, I, and then a friend of mine... Brahms with a twang, though, right? Yeah, well, yeah, Brahms, two syllables. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine, I was just stuck. I psyched myself into a corner, and a friend goes, but you signed a contract. You got to do it, and it'll be over in 30 minutes. So no matter what, just do the fucking thing. So I wrote a piece, and I handed it in to the conductor and the arranger, a guy named Jeff Tysick, who I never met. We collaborated on the phone. He's a brilliant guy. He's like Chuck Mangione's music director for years. Oh, cool, He's yeah. done like hundreds and hundreds of records scoring. He knows how to work with pop musicians. And so we collaborated on the score by talking albums. I was going like, okay, in, 19, in Prince's 1999, it does that. And he goes, yep, got it. I said, on this Benny Carter record, the second track, it, like, like about halfway in, the horns go, this thing, he goes, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I want this to be really dissonant here, like something like a, you know, like Arvo Part in this song. And he goes, which track, which label, da, 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 da. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So we collaborated by that. Huh. And I've never met this guy. 
they came back and they said it's really boring. And I had written this piece about the symphony, about what it what it was. It was a migration piece about American migration. And he goes, okay, I've got your records. I believe those. I've got this piece that you've written. I believe that. I got the music, and I don't believe a word of it. I don't believe a note of it. Then this is the arranger telling me. He goes, it's like you're pretending. He goes, you're a songwriter. Write songs. I'll make it sound like a symphony. Write songs. He goes, now, some of this is really good. You can keep some of it, but some of this is just awful. And I was already a week overdue handing the piece in. I hung up the phone, wrote a stupid, simple, not stupid, but a, a crazy, simple little folk song about this migration thing. And over the next day and a half, rewrote the whole thing, the whole 30-minute symphony. And I was doing it on sequencers. Wrote a whole new, couple of new pieces of music, sequenced it, emailed it off, and that was the thing. But the message was, do it, say within the lanes enough. You work towards your strength. And it was transformative for me doing it. And the best part was... There was a percussion player there. I still get emotional thinking about it. So this percussion player is like 70 years old. And all about, you know, the rehearsals, like what I'd written for the percussion section was awful. And they knew that I didn't read music by this point, and half of them were furious because this guy who doesn't read music has been commissioned to write this piece. But this per- one of the percussion players came up to me after the first night of the performance, this two-night performance, and the guy goes, listen, I woke up really early this morning thinking about this piece. It was really exciting to play a new piece. He goes, but there's this one section in the piece where it's like the dynamics are going up and down. And he goes, and I'm, I'm playing the vibraphone at that point. What if I countered that? What if when it's going down, I go up? And when it goes down, yep, I go down. It'll create a wave. And I was like, yeah, go. Awesome. So it was like, by me being me and admitting that I don't know, yeah. So you leave space for other people to come in. That was like the best message. Which is directly relates to songwriting with soldiers. I yeah, say, be yourself, but don't it, don't act like you know everything. Yeah. yeah, I say I don't know all the time. Yeah, because he doesn't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, how's it going for you? Yeah, well, it's, I'm it's still it. here. Yeah, okay. I'm talking to you. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. You're talking to Darren Smith. I am. Okay, so you just came out with this album. What's what's the everything? What is the what's the plan? When did it come out? It came out last week. Last week, my yeah. goodness. Okay, so you're just starting the tour now. Yeah, right. And so you hitting you going all over the country and you. No. No, I'll, I'll do. Uh, I have a hard time touring like I used to do, so I'll, I'll do dates. I'll do some shows. I'll do like weekends. I'll do uh, like ten day runs. But, I'll go to England. You know, I was uh, also looking at your the number of albums you came out with. You you did not go more than four years without coming out with a new album. Yeah, I put up fifteen records in thirty years. And yeah, so sometimes it was like every year, once a year. I did that for a while. That's a pace I don't really want to try to match. My God, that's that's you're in the studio all the time doing that. Uh, no, actually, yeah, there's a lot of time. But I mean, it was a while for a while. I was like writing and cranking them out. But are you uh, quick in the studio? Are you, are you yeah, I like. I don't like. I actually, don't like recording studios that much. I don't. Uh-huh. I don't like the the process is fun, but I don't like. I don't like. I don't want to know about the gear. I don't yeah, go hang out in studios. You're not a gearhead. No, I'm not a gearhead. I'm a guitar guy, but not a gearhead. I love making records because it's like playland, and you get good, really good musicians around you, and it's really fun. On this record, were some of the, the good memories or, or of recording it itself and well, working with people? Well, the band itself and- was magical. Sitting, I mean, like, I've known them all for a long time. You know, Charlie Sexton played guitar. Roscoe Beck played bass. Roscoe and I have been playing together for almost 20 years now. And Roscoe was the music director for Leonard Cohen, and Charlie plays with Dylan. But I knew Charlie when he was 16, 17, you know, in Austin. Uh, Michael Ramos, his keyboards, I've known Michael for over 20 years. J.J. Johnson, uh, I met him on a record I did in 2000. David Mansfield, same thing. I met him for on a record I did in probably, uh, God, 1992. 
He played on Little Victories. I have a philosophy. I don't want to work with people that don't want to work with me. Uh, and I got that from a guy in Austin named Roy Spence. But at a certain point, it's like, I just want to work with my friends. I want to work with cool people that I like. I've been doing it for long enough that I know really good people who are, I'm mean, really cool people who are also really good. And yeah. so why not work with them? And so we had this connection. We sat down and I said, okay, guys, before we started recording, I said, just so, just so you know, there's no reason to make a record now. There's no point. What's the point? Can anybody think of a reason there's to make no this money. record? <laughs> there's no money. So coming together and recording that and just telling them, like, we're going to make this record because we have, because there's something to say. Because yeah. there's, there's something to say here. And let's make music that we believe in. And here's where I'm coming from on this record. And every, before every song, I would sit down with the band. I'd go, okay, here's the deal with this song. Okay, here's what I was thinking of. And it would change their instruments. <laughs> it would, Charlie would pick up a different guitar. David Mansell would go, oh, I think mandolin. Wow, it's like that. Yeah, that, the, the drummer in the symphony yeah. that said, "If I go up and you go down." Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, recording. I, I don't tell them what to do, man. I go like, I mean, these guys are really good. You know, I want my money's worth. So like, I'm not going to tell you what I hear in my head until I hear what's in your head. You have them there for a reason. You yeah. have them there yeah, for I want what they Charlie do. Sexton. I want everything right. I can get. Charlie Sexton. I want everything I can get from Roscoe Beck and Michael. Ron. I want it all. And it's their interpretation. Yeah, too. totally. Yeah, and like my ideas are okay, but your ideas might be better. <laughs> I want the best one. And honestly, it, it almost seems like it's it'd be harder for them for you to tell them what your yeah. for the, what, how are they going to figure out what your idea yeah. is. Let yeah. them do their let them do their job or what they yeah. do best. But right? They, there's some and there's a freedom uh, in that too. Yeah, right? totally, totally. Yeah, I and, love that kind of yeah. Collaboration. And there's like a couple of things like Charlie's guitar was right beside me, and his amp was right behind me, and quite a few times we forget to close the door, so his amp is just like all over my lead vocal. It's just all over it, so we couldn't take it out. <laughs> it's like it's there, can't mix it out. I recorded and sang the guitar and vocal at the same time live. There were no headphones. We we're on the same room. It was magical. It was really magical. It's one of those uh, things that everything uh, to me. I mean, who knows if it sells or whatever, but you know, I think. Um, even gets down to the funding of the record how it was funded and uh, I just went to people that I knew were interested in what I do and I said it's not an investment it's a contribution do you want to be involved in a record that is positive there's no cynical songs on the record I believe that love is actually something worth talking about and I think that we can change some days we can change some people's days do you want to get in and I raised the money with six phone calls so I just think that was a, the first sign that this was a good idea because there was a buy-in from people that collaborate. It was a collaboration with all these people. Funders, musicians, writers, singers. It's collaboration. Did the name Everything come after? Well, I mean, there was, the a, song process? Called, there was, a, song, there was a song called Everything. So okay, yeah. it came from that. So, yeah. But that Everything, the song, to me, embodies the record. You know, 55 years old and the vision that you have. You know, after you turn 50, it's like everything looks different, you know. It's like all of a sudden things you used to care about, you don't care about, and the future comes, the horizon gets really close when you turn 50. And so, which is great, I love it, you know. But just the wanting it all. I want it all. You know, the chorus is I want it all. I want everything, you know, all the joy that life can bring, you know. I just want it all, so bring it. But let's like recognize the beautiful things that are around us. Don't get caught up in what's wrong recognize the beautiful things and really go for that i spent a lot of years looking at the bad things and i'm just kind of over it i'm done with cynicism i'm done with you know trying to be cool for that it's like what's the point i'm 50 (laughs) 55 i'm not cool well i think cool changes its definition over time yeah i hope so like chuck is cool still cool thank you so very much no yeah Yeah. darden thank you very much my pleasure i love talking to you it's It's gonna be a hard editing job 
oh well you know i've had i've had worse yeah, he has to edit a lot of stuff i say he's used to it so. yeah yeah so yeah and talking with you has been great you know because it everything you've done sort of sort of ties in with your own your own story but it's about other people's stories so thanks for telling that story and um we're psyched to see you tonight thank you very much Hate might win a battle Love will win the war Fill your life in the shadows Settling the scores All you're gonna get for your trouble Another madman at the door Hate might win a battle, boy Love will win the war Fill your mouth with poison Bound to swallow some Build a wall long and tall You got no room to run Walk with the heart of a lion Jungle listens when you Win a battle, boys Love will win the war Yet and when we all meet on that distant shore All the reasons we fight Who's wrong and who's right don't matter anymore Cause hate might win a battle, boys Love will win the war So if your days seem desperate Wolf is at the door Show some human kindness Forgive a little more Hold a hand of mercy Kneel down on the floor Hate might win a battle, boy Love will win the war Yet and when we all meet on that distant shore All the reasons we fight Who's wrong and who's right Don't matter Win a battle, boys. Yeah, hate might win a battle, boys. Love will win the war. Love will win the war. Love will win the war. Love will win the war.
We really enjoyed sitting with Darden. He is such a giving person and honest songwriter, such a great guy. You need to go to dardensmith.com and check out his music as well as his songwriting with Soldiers Project. Go to our website at abovethebasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.